Fiona Budd, I've been working with young people and adults for more than 40 years, helping them to live their best life. Now on this podcast, I do it for you too. That's why we call it At Your Best, so I can help you become your best self each week. So let's explore stories from all across Canada and celebrate how strong we really are, even when we feel at our weakest. On this episode, we talk about how Air Canada forced a man to crawl off a plane because they refused to bring him a wheelchair, why children can purchase nicotine in these new products, and why a state is helping addicts figure out how to get a handle on their money. We also dive into how our prison system is failing our Indigenous population, and also why an alleged rapist is walking scot-free because our courts are backed up. So sit back, relax, and get ready to listen to ways we can help make you be at your best. Feel lonely? You feeling a little lonely at all, right? You know, you, you find that when you're walking in the street, and you're, you know, or in a mall, let's say, and you're kind of walking by yourself, but you feel alone, even though there's so many people around you, that sense of loneliness and, and not fitting in and not belonging. Well, I'll tell you, you're not alone. Absolutely not. There's a new study that came out that says that uh, Toronto being the, uh, what is it, Toronto being the biggest uh, city in the country, Canada, I believe. Uh, big people living in big cities like Toronto, Edmonton, Vancouver, Calgary, Montreal, places like that. Well, Toronto is the loneliest place in Canada. No, that's a fact, Jack. The new study found that the most populated city in all of Canada is the loneliest. Have a listen to the president and CEO of the Toronto Foundation who put a report together with all these statistics. Have a listen. You know, we really feel that people have to understand the fact that, uh, yes, there are a lot of crises going on in the world, um, but we have to stay connected with each other. We've got to get back in person with each other, and we've got to uh, start connecting in our communities again. So, you know, there you go. Roughly 35% of students report feeling lonely. 44% of students in Toronto, the district school board, that's the 44% of them feel lonely. Uh, 28% of adults say they have six or more uh, close friends, and only 32% say they've got less than six or more close relatives or friends. 37% say they feel lonely at least three to four times a week, which is the highest percentage in Canada in all its major cities. So people who are living in these big cities, right? I mean, we've all kind of felt alone and we felt like we don't really belong. But the idea is, you know, especially since the since the, the pandemic is over, the idea is for us to get out and connect, right? So we all kind of got involved in this whole lockdown thing. I don't like to go backwards, by the way. You know, I'm a mindful guy. I live in the moment. Hope you do the same. But you're feeling lonely? If you're feeling lonely, let me know. 877-399-9898. We'd like to hear from you and see what you think. But the foundation has been tracking quality of life issues in Toronto for more than 20 years. And it's been gathering a lot of its own data, right? So it does its own social survey of more than 4,000 Torontonians in 2022. And the foundation's 2023 report is the Toronto Vital Signs, the Power of Us, paints a somber picture of life in Toronto post-pandemic. Well, I don't know. You really think so? The number of people in Toronto with six or more close friends declined by 20% from 2013 to 2018, a further 9% from 2018 to 2022, and a further 28% according to the the report. So we're at a total of 28% in 2022 of people who feel uh, or report having six or more close friends. But that number is declining significantly, as you can see. So the number of Toronto residents with six or more close friends dropped you know, substantially uh, to 32% from uh, 2018 to 2022. 
So that, you know, basically what does that mean? And, in, you know, places like Calgary, the rate's 28%. <clears throat> Other places in Canada, Maritimes is pretty high, 35%. Ontario as a whole, 31%. So a whole lot of people are reporting feeling lonely, have less friends, are not doing so much, so many things socially. Okay, I get it, right? So let's hear. It's you and me. We're having a conversation. It's just us. No one else in the room. So let's talk, right? Are you a little bit lazy when it comes time to getting out to meet new people? You know, is it just much easier to just chill at home or go home, make yourself something to eat, you know, get, you know, binge watch some Netflix show or get a good movie or read a book or whatever. Just don't feel like mingling. Maybe learn during the pandemic that, you know what? I don't need so many people in my life. You know, maybe that's the, that's the thing. That's the, 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 the rub that we're looking for here is that we've learned perhaps after being locked down for so long that being, you know, being by ourselves isn't so bad. Well, for some people, for other people, it's brutal. And in terms of a statistic, we know that Toronto in particular has the most people feel that feel lonely in a city that's swamped with human beings. So one would think if you, you know, as a matter of fact, I've got a couple of patients, one in particular right now, we've been working a lot over the last three or four months on learning how to socialize. So a lot of the folks that I work with or, you know, in my, in my uh, therapy practice in particular that have substance abuse issues and are now clean and sober, working on being clean and sober, which means not using drugs or alcohol, uh, self-medicating in any way. For a lot of them, it's very difficult to figure out a way to, to socialize again. They're used to socializing when they're drunk or high. That's just what they know. It's what they do. It's what they respond well to. They feel better when they've got a buzz on. Easier to talk to people. Easier to talk to strangers. Well, it's much more difficult to do if you don't have that buzz. And by the way, if you're not in recovery and, and you know you feel like going out to meet people and have a beer somewhere or go out and you know do something like go and play darts, join a boy bowling league. There are so many things you can do, especially if you're living in Toronto and major cities across Canada. There's lots to do everywhere. You know, there's places to go, people to see. There's things called Meetup. There's Meetup Toronto. There's Meetup Edmonton. There's Meetup, you know, uh, Vancouver. There's Meetup Victoria. There's these Meetup groups. And they're driven by online activity. And people organize things that people sign up for, decide to, to come to, whether it's a you know, whether it's a, uh, you know, a, a, an event at a park, whether it's a, a you know, some kind of uh, baseball thing or some kind of thing, something related to sports. <clears throat> These meetup activities provide us with an opportunity to go out and meet new people. But if all of us are sitting at home and we think that it's great and it's so cool and we don't have to go to the office anymore, another big component, right? We're not going to the office. We're not meeting folks in work, in the workplace like we used to. That used to be the place to do it, right? You'd go to a workplace and, you know, you'd meet your buddies and maybe have something to eat with them at lunch or maybe something to eat with them after, after work, right? But if you're not going to work these days because you're working from home, there's no one to go catch up with after, after, after work, right? They're just, it's just not feasible. So we miss that whole component. We miss that whole piece of being able to, um, you know, interact with folks with like-minded thinking, right? So what's like-minded thinking? People who have the same types of things on their mind as you do. I know that sounds like a, you know, like you should know what it means. Of course you know what it means. 
But when you go to work at the same place and, you, you know, you're talking about the same company, there's common ground. You know, if you're meeting people at a, at a, at a, at a, at a, you know, at a, at a local bar or a local pub where there's a, you know, a dart league, you know, you're going to meet people who like to, like to throw darts if you join a bowling league and on and on and on. There are ways to get social without having to go to a bar and get to know people, right? Like you don't have to do the meat market routine to go out and get social. There's so many things you can join. There's, you know, things at the art, at different art galleries. There's things at different uh, museum opportunities, different events, things you can sign up for a cooking course. You can sign up for a a life drawing course. Lots of things you can do, right? Lots Lots of things you can do to get out and meet people. You know, by nature, we really don't like to be alone. So if you can get out, do some volunteers, some volunteering, for example, some activities, you know, there's there's walking groups, you know, depending on where you live, you know, places like Vancouver have walking groups and, you know, they have a lot of biking uh, opportunities. Toronto does too in this type of way when, when the weather's nice. Excuse me. So the opportunity to get out and meet people doing activities that are similar to what you like, there's a chance that you're going to make some new friends. It's just the way it works. They like cycling. You like cycling. Hey, you want to go for something to eat after? I'm, you know, that kind of stuff happens. But we have to know enough that we need to pick up on some of these social cues. So that's what we're talking about. Get out, make some friends, make some stuff happen. And uh, that's what that's all about. What I want to talk about is kind of like I can't believe we're having this conversation. Okay. The deal is that there are nicotine patches available in Canada that come in flavors and colors and, you know, all that attractive stuff, especially if you're a kid, right? And the at the end of the day, these are being available, made available to kids unbeknownst to their parents most of the time. So the, here's the issue. The issue is should nicotine, I want, I, want, I want to hear what you have to say, 877-399-9898. And by the way, Leo just told me the song's called Nikki. Uh, but um, I want to hear from you. What do you think? 877-399-9898. Should we be allowing children to have access to nicotine products? Next question is, what kind of brain fart must have gone on in the minds of the authorities and the people in government that passed these types of things and made them available over the counter? Here's the deal. The deal is they're colorful. They look cool. For the first time in 100 years, kids now have access to tobacco products openly. And all the health organizations, all of them that you can think of, right? Cancer Society, all of those folks, right? Everybody that's on that hit parade, they're all saying, no, no, no. The government needs to do something to make sure there's a restriction here. It's so easy for them to get it. I mean, when I was a kid, it was kind of easy, too. You could pay an older boy to go into the store. No one really, you know, if you honestly speaking... There's not that many variety stores, convenience stores that actually check ID when selling certain products, especially cigarettes and so on. So if you're, you know, if you're a, a kid that looks like you're, sh- you know, you're shaving and you're you're taller and you're a little bigger and so on, you look like you could easily be 19. You know, you're getting cigarettes for the younger kids who are paying you to do so. It still goes on. We did it when we were young. I'm sure you did the same thing. Here's the problem. Canada is introducing a new tool. That's a cessation tool to help co- uh, people quit smoking. It's smokeless, odorless, and healthier than cigarettes and vapes, they say. They can be purchased by children, though. 
for and I and there's no legal ramifications for these products being sold to children. As I said, they come in colorful packages and flavors, sold in convenience stores, heavily advertised. These nicotine pouches are very appealing. They come in flavors like Tropic Breeze, Chill Mint, Berry Frost, with colorful small little packages that we we know could very well hold candy. Of course you want to buy them, right? But here's what's in them. The, these nicotine pouches, they're, what you're supposed to do is you position them between your upper lip and your gum, kind of like you used to do with uh, uh, chewing tobacco or snuff back in the day. It's they're typically used as a smokeless alternative to traditional smoking products. And according to a 2023 article published in the British uh, Dental Journal, the increase in popularity, popularity is through the roof. Becoming increasingly popular around the roof as they are likely substantially lower risk products compared to smoking cigarettes, they say, according to the experts. They're, they're very new. There wasn't a lot of extensive research done into uh, understanding these products and the ramifications they have longer term. But according to Imperial Tobacco Canada, they say we had to go through an application process with Health Canada, a lengthy process. It took a little bit less than two years, but very lengthy process. Come on. Complicated process. We did manage to demonstrate that it does help people quit smoking, so we were granted a license. Okay. Who's overseeing this? Who's making sure that these aren't available to kids? Okay, I get that that it's a, it's a it's a, a quit smoking you know treatment process plan that uh, you know I don't know how it helps quit smoking, but certainly reduces smoking so you get your nicotine another way. Imperial Tobacco is still selling it, still a tobacco product. It was it was introduced without any real disclosure or any kind of real testing, right? They didn't know the dangers of cigarettes either, by the way, 100 years ago. We had to wait for a whole generation to get really sick before we understood the devastation that these products can have on us. Same with these pouches. They're, the product they're, the product is, they're, they're, according to the Imperial Tobacco, they feel like their product is being targeted, and all they're trying to do is help adults quit. Okay, but, the, but kids can buy them too. And there are some marketing conditions at store level, but really nothing that's a deterrent to a kid. There's no signs up to say, don't buy these things. Don't buy these things. They're not good for you. Or here's the dangers to children. Or you can't buy them under the age of 18, under the age of 19. So they, ha they, you know, they, they suggest it was made clear that it should be behind the counter, not over the counter. And even though it's not regulated, Imperial Tobacco's asked their 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 sellers to you know make sure the person's a verified adult. Well, there's no legal reason to do that. They're going to sell as many of these pouches to as many people as that, that can write you know that can go into their pocket and come out with the cash. Hard to make a living these days in the convenience store business, mostly you know due to the fact that people aren't spending what they used to spend and they're not traveling the way they used to to and from work and all kinds of reasons. Let alone restrict them to pick and choose who they can sell certain products to. That's the government's job. What are other countries doing? I'll tell you what other countries are doing because nicotine is so highly addictive. You cannot imagine. Nicotine is more difficult to get off of than heroin. Heroin, excuse me. Seconded only by maybe alcohol because it pollutes your bloodstream so quickly, so rapidly. You know, it's so difficult to kick cigarettes, to kick 
to kick uh, uh, nicotine, to kick tobacco. And now these new products are making it even more difficult because rather than quitting nicotine, you just stick one of these things up in your lip and you don't have to smoke and you get your nicotine buzz and so on. But we don't know what it's going to do longer term. We thought that vaping was that solution, remember? I don't know how many of my shows you might have heard on vaping, but we know that that's not good for us. Certainly not good for kids. The stuff that fires off the, you know, the the the, the nicotine product in the in the oil is so bad for your lungs, so bad for your throat. You know, I've heard stories of, of young kids that look like, you know, they've been smoking three packs a day for the last ten years, and they've been vaping for two years or less. Not good. But we have a small window of opportunity to keep these flavored pouches out of the hands of kids. We missed the opportunity with e-cigarettes, right? They weren't legalized. They, they weren't, they, when they were legalized, excuse me, they missed the opportunity that's here before us today. We didn't do a very good job when we were, when we were restricting the use of uh, nicotine products delivered through a vape, uh, a vape device. So what do we do? What do you do as a parent? What do you do as an adult? How do we make sure, right? That these kinds of this kind of a product doesn't get into the hands of, of, of children. What are we doing to make sure when these products are are authorized and approved that someone's actually paying attention to what it means at the street level? I just don't understand it. It doesn't make sense to me. No one's paying attention. Someone definitely dropped the ball. One of our uh, one of our writers here from uh, from Alberta was reaching out here. He says, I never underestimate the, the wisdom of the government. After you've made a, donate, a donation to their, their political party, then they carry on with these kinds of things. Yeah, okay. So at the end of the day, who you make a donation to has nothing to do with anything. What I'm talking about here is who's paying attention to what's good and not good for the kids in our life. And someone is missing the boat here on these pouches because they're disastrous. Have you ever helped somebody who's in need? Ever. Someone who needed help getting into something, out of something, off of something, right? Somebody's in need. They're clearly having a hard time getting around. <clears throat> they need some support. Are you the kind of person who just walks right by them and leaves them alone? Are you the kind of person that would likely do what you could to try to help? Like to hear what you say, 877-399-9898. Let me tell you like this. Here's a guy. His name is Rodney Hodgkins. And Rodney is a guy who, as a result of, um, uh, so, uh, as a result of seizures that he has um, from his, um, I think it's from cerebral palsy, he's got some form of, of uh, issue that's a, that causes him to not be able to walk on his own, right? He's got some issues that make it difficult for him to, to move his legs. He has to use a motorized wheelchair when he's, you know, getting around on his normal day-to-day -day stuff, right? And Rodney and his wife went on a trip. They went to Vegas. And they get to, so here's how, they, I'll tell you how it works with me. I use a motorized scooter, and it's a foldable scooter. It goes right to the plane, goes right up to, I use it when I, I get out of my vehicle. I go through parking. I go through the, the, the airport and um, get to, to, ultimately through security and so on, get to the gate, staying on my scooter the entire time. My scooter goes right to the edge of the jetway, so right where the right where you get onto the plane from the jetway, <clears throat> which is that long thing that you go along to get from the airport to the plane itself, right? And then I fold up my scooter, 
They take it and put it underneath for me. I'm able to make it easily to my chair because I can walk somewhat. I have some use of my legs. I just can't walk very long or very far or, or load my body for a great period of time. Well, this fellow, Rodney, he can't even do that, right? He's either got to be in a wheelchair or sitting straight or, you know, in some form of uh, support because if he's left on his, to his own uh, strength, his legs don't carry him and he can't stand. So they get to Vegas. He as he normally does. He waits with his wife. They wait for everyone else to get off the plane, just like I do. And then as they get off the plane, typically what happens, everyone's gone. Someone will come from the airline with what's called, a, um, an, uh, I think it's called an aisle chair, which is a very narrow chair uh, that works similar to a wheelchair, but it's narrow. It gets up and down the aisles of an airplane. <clears throat> typically would come and get him, put him in the, in the aisle chair, get him to the off the plane where his motorized uh, wheelchair would be waiting for him, and off he goes and carries on with his life. Okay? Well, what happened here was when he got there, everybody got off the plane. They were celebrating their first wedding anniversary. Right? Guy's 49 years old. He has spastic cerebral palsy, spastic cerebral palsy which causes him to have the inability to causes him to have an to not have the ability to carry himself around. I knew I'd get to it. And here he is sitting with no way to get off the plane. Now, not only is he on the plane, there's hundreds of other people on the plane. It's an Air Canada plane, by the way. I never fly Air Canada for what it's worth. But anyway, hundreds of people getting off the plane. I don't know how many flight attendants, and there was a captain and a co-captain and, you know, six or seven or eight people that actually worked for the airlines were on the on the plane itself, right? By the way, Rodney's from BC, a place that is very supportive of folks that have disabilities of certain of certain types, right? Gets to the gets to gotta get off the plane. You gotta clean the plane. The plane's gotta go. It's gotta go to other places. Rodney and his wife felt so bad he didn't know what to do. He was left to his own devices because again not a single human being stopped to say hey man you need some help can i at least you know grab something for you or you can lean on me or whatever no he was so dehumanized and left to his own devices that all he could do was drag himself off the plane get from his chair to his knees from his knees to his arms and use his upper body you got to see a picture of the guy he's got massive upper body must work out like crazy right nice looking couple he had to drag himself with his wife behind him. So his wife would crawl behind him, holding his legs up as he pulled himself with his arms. Like, come on, folks. I'm embarrassed. I'm embarrassed for every one of you that was on that plane. I'm embarrassed for every one of you that wouldn't have stood up to help this guy and his wife in some way, shape, or form, realizing that he wasn't getting the support he needed. Now, fairly... To, to be fair to everyone, I guess they were all waiting for the, the airline staff to bring this chair, but clearly there were tons of people still getting off the plane as they began to crawl from behind them. Like, what the hell? Seriously? Like, bad enough that the airline left him standing, like, the, left him standing, not so I wish. The airline left him, you know, to, to, to his own designs to get off a plane. Like, how do you drag yourself, expect a man, a human being, any human being, to have to get on their hands and knees and crawl across a, by the way, a disgusting airline floor 
I mean, it's dirty. It's messy. Lots of people getting on and off till they clean them before and after each flight. So it's the schmutziest part of the plane, to say the least. And he's got to pull himself to get from where he can to the front of the plane. Twelve rows. Had to pull himself 12 rows. So not only is it degrading and disgusting and humiliating, but it's just not the right thing to do as a human being. Like, why wouldn't one of the flight attendants stuck with him? They just said, hey, sorry, we can't seem to get the uh, the chair. So you're going to have to make, what did she say? She says, uh, an airline crew, including the pilot, what did they say to her? Um they actually said that the, the airline person said to them uh, that there's no aisle seat coming and that you'd need to get off the plane by yourself, according to one of the flight attendants. Really? Two flight attendants, eight cleaning staff. Everybody watched this guy crawl off the airplane. According to Air Canada, we used the services of a third-party wheelchair assistant specialist in Las Vegas Following our investigation into how this serious service lapse occurred, we're evaluating our mobility assistance service partners in Las Vegas. That's nice. No one else in the whole freaking building could have found this guy, this narrow wheelchair? Like, come on, man. I, it's embarrassing. I'm embarrassed to be a to be a, a, a human being. I'm embarrassed to, that we would have let someone in our lives have to crawl off the plane like an animal. It's just not right. So what happened was after they got they had their vacation, they had a great time, great honeymoon, came back to Canada. On the return flight, the Air Canada representative met with them, told them that he's got to go through the normal Air Canada complaint process. I don't know if you've ever tried to go through a bureaucratic complaint process, airline, phone company, anybody like that. It sucks big time. Not easy to do. And they said, you know what? He complained. He did what he had to do. He didn't hear back from anyone. Received a phone call weeks later from a customer service representative offering him $2,000 flight voucher for a future flight. $2,000 to have to crawl off the airplane to be humiliated, dehumanized, degraded, disrespected, like maybe at a zero, I'm thinking. I don't know. Haven't heard from you out there, so I don't know what you all think, but I think it's disgusting. And he says, and Rodney and his wife say this, you know, it's not about the money. They have to change their policy. They got to make sure that, when that another person with disabilities is coming off the plane. It doesn't happen what happened to me. According to the Canadian Transportation Association or agency, airlines must follow obligations set out in the regulations and they're subject to administrative monetary penalties for noncompliance. So they mess up. They write you a check. They give you some cash, which, by the way, they make tons of money anyway. And no harm, no foul. No, I don't think so. That doesn't that doesn't work with me for sure. Absolutely not. Air Canada is offering to settle. By the way, Air Canada is trying to offer uh, settlements to uh, uh, compensation settlements to other folks that have issues with uh, with the airlines, and the settlements they're getting are not very good. So it, you know, here's the here's the problem. They've dropped. They've, Air Canada has lost. Um, lost uh, wheelchairs for other people they it's not the first time that someone with disabilities was mistreated on a, on an airplane um air canada is the one that comes to mind unfortunately but i'm telling you man they're going to do a better job this is just like it's embarrassing to be human when i hear these kinds of things oh, 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 yeah, yeah. Ooh, 
I can take you back a long time ago, decades ago, when I was on the street doing what I did. And, you know, amongst the gangster population, which were legitimate, you know, organized criminals, not like these mini gangsters, these wannabes that are out there today. Um, there were certain things that, you know, were just understood. There were, you know, you didn't, uh, if you were involved in any kind of activity, it didn't involve kids, you didn't involve family, you know, you stayed away from, you know, each other's mothers. And if you, if they were old enough to be married, wives and children, they were just off, off, you know, off, uh, they're, they're off the mark. They're, they're off base and you couldn't touch them. Right. They just, you just, whatever was going on, gang to gang, group to group, family to family it didn't involve kids it didn't involve the wives didn't involve the parents right it's changed over the years big time and now we're finding that there's absolutely brazen activity that one cannot even imagine in broad daylight imagine right you're driving down the street during the day busy intersection all of a sudden, you hear pop, 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 pop. You look over, and there's a guy slumped over in the car. Kid next to him slumped over in the car. In this case, there was another kid in the back seat. Fortunately, he wasn't hurt. You imagine thinking to yourself how devastated you would be, thinking, oh, my God, they shot a kid. And if you're not involved in gang activity, which... Obviously, hopefully, most of you that are listening to me aren't. So to understand this, you have to understand that this is crossing the line even for the bad guys. You know, there used to be a level of honor amongst thieves. There used to be a, a level of, of understanding about the rules of engagement. Well, this man and his 11-year-old son were both intentionally shot and killed in a vehicle in southeast Edmonton on Thursday. And according to Edmonton police, they talked about the killings on Friday morning, that the father, who was known to them, someone that uh, they had uh, some information about, who was highly uh, highly known or well-known up in the hierarchy of organized crime in the drug trade in particular, father was 41, that the 11-year-old and the father were targeted. It wasn't collateral damage. It wasn't a mistake. Let's hear what Jim says in Edmonton. Hey, Jim, what's up? Oh, hi. Uh, I was just phoning in. Yep, appreciate I was talking it. About, I'm talking about terrorism. Okay, you've got people going around firebombing synagogues and shooting up mosques and stuff like that. Now, there's a guy in London, Ontario, that drove his car and wiped out a family. Yeah, and they, found that he wasn't, they found that he wasn't uh, guilty of terrorism, I know. It's, uh, but that is an act of terrorism. Yeah, for sure. He's terrorizing yeah, but you and I, they, no one asked you and me, though, right? Unfortunately. Well, no, but why don't they ask the public what they think? No, well, we exactly. Got well, exactly. And we're just but, puppets but, on the string. But in your hood, in Personally. Edmonton, in your in Edmonton, what are people talking about? About uh, what are people saying about this eleven-year-old kid getting massacred on the street during daylight with his father in the car on a normal uh, day in the afternoon? What What are people on the street saying about that? I don't know. I don't talk to people about that. But I personally, it goes back yeah. to the days of the mafia. We'll wipe your seed off the planet of the earth. And if he's well, involved with, he got his family involved with the drugs and that scene. Exactly. If he was any kind of man, he would have just lived a life. 
and kept it kept his family away from me. I appreciate the call, buddy. Thanks, Jim. I appreciate it. Um, but yeah, and, and Jim is right. He's right on the money. You know, it, it, there was a time in the world of criminality, uh, and still, I mean, real organized criminals that uh, do it for a living are a professional. Uh, not that I'm, I'm suggesting that that's a, something someone should aspire to, but they're much more calculating in terms of how they do what they do. And killing kids isn't good for business. Killing kids definitely brings out a whole new set of policing, a whole new priority for everyone that's involved in law with law enforcement to try to make this different. But here's what we're learning. Glenn, my producer, was sharing with me some unique context here as we're talking about this story because I was so angry. And I said, we've got to talk about this. We've got to talk about this Saturday night because I can't stand it. Like, like what, what's com- what are we coming to here? What's happening to us that, you know, children and, and family are, are, are just, you know, they continue. I use the term collateral damage because I don't know what other term to use. But I'll tell you something. If you watch the news today, Unfortunately, and look at what's going on in the world, specifically in the Middle East, the death of children, the mutilation of children. I don't have to get into it. I don't want to, I don't, I don't make this about that for you tonight. That's not what we're about here. We're trying to find some positive stuff when we can spin it, but hard to spin this story in a positive way. What I'm telling you is we're losing our, we're really losing our, 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 our compass here. Not just, and, and not just the bad guys, good guys too. The amount of domestic abuse, the amount of, of, of uh, uh, assault that goes on behind closed doors and in, in people's homes against children, against you know women, especially in the Aboriginal community, it, it's 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 awful. I don't know what else to say. There's no other word to, to describe it. So what are we doing here? What how how are we going to be able to get our heads around the fact that killing kids isn't okay? And like Jim said from Edmonton, he called in. I appreciate it. And he called. I'd love to hear from all of you, by the way. Um, give us a call if you feel like it, 877-399-9898. But at the end of the day, here's the deal. The deal is there's no, there's no boundaries anymore. And the father and other people that are listening need to understand that what you, what you do often ends up at home. It's like a bad smell. You go out and you make a mess on the street. In some way, shape, or form, it's going to come back to haunt you whether it's the kidnapping of your children, whether it's the abduction and, and, and abuse of your wife or your mother or your sister or your brother or grandparents. Bad people have a way of getting to other bad people in, 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 in ways that are scary and shocking. And there's nothing scarier and more shocking than the death of a kid that's targeted as part of the assassination of his father. And it's not the first time his father had been shot at. He was shot at a few years back. Survived that in some way, shape, or form. So he, you'd think the dad would know enough to not be dragging, driving around with the kid in the car. Or the mother would be saying, you know, you really need to stay out of the, you know, stay, keep the kids away. There's no protection for the child, neither from the family or from the bad guys. Real scumbags, by the way. There's no money in it. There's no money in killing kids. There's no money in killing innocent people. It doesn't add to the fear factor. People think that it might, but it doesn't. It just it it just it becomes so horrific that it shuts down the whole neighborhood. Anybody who's committing crimes no longer has the ability to do so because of these stupid, disastrous, inhumane choices. I feel terrible. 
I feel terrible for the whole community in Edmonton. I feel terrible for anybody and everybody who feels like they might somehow be at risk. They see it on TV. And, you know, other than back in the day, some of the gangs from the Eastern blocks and some of the gangs from, from parts of Asia were relentless, relentless street gangs. But not like this. You don't really see them killing kids. Kidnapping, maybe. But not killing a kid. There's no there's no upside. So I'm just hoping that we're going to get a handle on, uh, on crime in Canada and figure out a way to uh, keep these bad guys off the streets and away from our children. Because there's no knowing, there's no telling what, where, who's safe and who's not. There's no moral fiber. There's no moral judgment, not even amongst criminals. And they make such bad and stupid decisions because, like I said in the onset, it's not good for business. When kids are getting killed and family members are getting killed, police come out in droves. It now becomes a real purpose. And they're going to get the bad guys. And hopefully they're going to bring them to, uh, bring them to trial and they're going to get the, the maximum penalty possible. The cost of addiction. We have to really understand the cost of addiction and recovery and what it means to a lot of family members uh, and communities that try to be there to support folks that are suffering and trying to um, get through uh, this devastating disease, addiction disease, which is a devastating disease. It's very difficult for people to find their way through in lots of cases. So imagine talking, imagine being a family who wants to help a relative, right, and take on the financial costs that are related with, with addiction. Sometimes it's, you know, it takes years of, for a person to find their way uh, to a place of getting help. And on their way, there's tons of financial issues. You know, there's there's poor poor money management, you know, money being spent on drugs and alcohol and bad choices and difficulty in finding places to live and paying rent and so on. A lot of families step in and try to do what they can, but there's a point at which you're enabling the, the person, right? There's a point at which, um, you know, just covering their expenses without uh, having some uh, boundaries around that so, so that a person has the motivation to get help. Um, is really, I think, the, the way that this has to, to move forward. Well, in Ohio, um, they, they have found that, um, according to financial advisors and bankers, that they found that um, the cost, of, uh, the cost of, of caring for someone who is uh, in, in recovery or on their way to recovery is, is so great that they're now teaching a program. They're now talking about ways that... Um, frontline people like bankers and investment folks and, and, and such are able to start looking at ways to pay attention to signals and, and things that show that someone perhaps that they're working with or one of their clients um, has, you know, is dealing with something that's unusual. And in this case, and, and the unusual part is the, the, the cost, the financial burden of helping somebody with addiction and mental health disease. You know, rehab, whether you it, it, even public rehab, you know, there's a long wait list. There's there's a whole cost in what happens with a person after they're in residential care and where they can live and, and trying to find sober housing is very expensive uh, if you can't find uh, public care and much not much of that's available. But just the financial obligations of helping somebody, you know, find a place to live, pay some rent, you know, if they're in school, continue to pay for school if they're at that stage or help them find a job, right? 
And I know, I, I tell you one story of a family who ended up losing their house, not losing their house, but mortgaging their house and um, giving up uh, uh, family uh, security and RRSPs to try to help uh, a young person um, get the kind of support and help that they need, only to find that, you know, it happens sometimes two and three times. It often takes a person two or three, maybe four times uh, in some form of recovery program to try to get it right, to get to a place where they actually feel empowered to get on the right track of recovery. So in Ohio, they're teaching, uh, they're, what they're doing is they're members across the country uh, that are dealing with um, members of financial institutions and, uh, and such are dealing with uh, this kind of stuff. And what they're, what they're realizing is that there are some, some triggers, things that they can find. Um, you know, obviously someone, so what they say is members across the country facing new financial burdens, children, parents, and other relatives struggle with the disease of addiction, whether they're missing work, blowing through their savings, uh, taking over, you know, raising children of, of their children, their grandchildren. The cost can lead up to hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars in medical bills, treatment costs, damage of properties, legal, legal bills, all kinds of legal bills associated with some of the activity that people are involved in when they're, when they're not in the, in the right place, and their heads aren't in the right place. And Ohio is an epicenter of the opioid crisis in the U.S., so uh, the Department of Commerce is taking a one-of-its-kind approach to aiding families financially uh, impacted by addiction by making sure people are handling their money, um, that they're learning how to do that. So they started a program called Recover, Recovery Within Reach program for net financial advisors, teaching them how to spot the signs of addiction in their clients. And uh, they surveyed by the department, and when they surveyed the, de the department, um, financial departments uh, found that 45% of Ontario financial advisors say they were aware of um, clients of theirs or clients, family members, that they were struggling with addiction, right? Um, at one in every one in 13 people that live in Ohio, Ohioans have a substance use disorder. It's a, it's a big issue there. So Recover Within Reach is an information hub on it has an information hub on their website and it's they're helping people understand their status their insurance status um, how they may be able to get insurance covered treatment uh, trying to find the more affordable housing programs and treatment programs um, and it's really interesting that they that these financial advisors have come up with ways to combat a um, multi multitude of financial crises like increasing cybersecurity issues and so on um, and they're now looking at at ways to teach people uh, how to deal with their finances when they're supporting somebody in recovery or perhaps in recovery themselves. Um, and it's quite, quite successful from what the, what the numbers look like right now. And it's a journey, this recovery journey, my friends, takes, takes years, like I said. And it, it, there's a cycle of, of costs related to the recovery process, whether it's the early on uh, process by which someone is, um, you know, Usually, it's uh, they find themselves in in a, in a bad way, uh, where housing becomes an issue, or or work, you know, having a job, you know, maintaining a job becomes an issue, and you know, so what do you do? What do you do? So I, I I'm a big believer that um, that there need to be um, arrangements made with people that you're trying to help, that there needs to be an understanding of what you're prepared to pay for and what they need to do in order for you to support them. There needs to be a give and a take. And that's where I think the big part uh, of what I see 
uh, is the issues that families are keen on jumping in to help without the person who they're helping having any real responsibility to be part of the process other than maybe showing up to their <clears throat> sessions or their therapy, right? And, you know, from the perspective of, of being an expert and someone that, that actually, you know, is involved with people's lives on a daily basis and my staff and so on dealing with the same thing, you know, it's families are just, they just get to a point where they just can't pay for it anymore. They just can't, there's just nothing left. They've exhausted their savings. They've exhausted, you know, any kind of, of, uh, of um, insurance programs that they've, you know, put money away for in terms of, of, of saving for their future. A lot of, a lot of folks that I deal with, you know, are finding that, you know, in their sixties and seventies that they're now having to care for um, children in uh, their own children who are now in their, you know, 30s and 40s who may have children of their own and not capable of taking care of them. They need to bring them into their own homes and do what they can to support them and their children and their families. Um, it, it, it's not it's it's not as simple as paying for rehab. So the, the best solution is to be able to live within your means, to be able to come up with a recovery plan that's affordable, that makes sense. Um, and in Ohio in particular, um, you know, people like your local banker have ideas and ways to help you manage your money in, in, a, in a way that's uh, uh, more effective and potentially leave you still with something left uh, for the future. So it's causing a lot of people to rethink their retirement and so on. It's, um, it's definitely, not a, definitely not a simple situation. So uh, I think something like that should happen in Canada. I, I, I'd love to hear your opinion. Please text me. Uh, let me know what you think. But I think we need a better understanding of the financial obligations and responsibilities that are involved in helping someone uh, who's in a recovery uh, process. Before we get to our guest, um, I want you to have a listen here to what um, the um, correctional investigator, Canada's correctional investigator, is saying about our federal prison system and how it um, is overrepresented by Indigenous folks. Have a listen. For many years now, my office has been sounding the alarm. The discriminatory treatment of Indigenous persons in federal custody was among the first set of issues raised by my office when it was created 50 years ago. In the decades that follow, my office has issued more than 70 recommendations specific to Indigenous corrections. Sadly, most of these calls have gone unanswered. Yeah, so we have a, a huge problem where there's a um, over overrepresented number of Indigenous folks, both male and female, in various prisons. Um, in Canada, the numbers are rising significantly. Uh, we're looking at um, just uh, there's over a third of the population in um, the prison system are Indigenous folks, and it's just really out of control. And, you know, to, from, from someone who's worked in the prison system, I can tell you um, that, you know, there's not a lot of good being done inside these days. And uh, I'm not sure there was ever a time when things were, uh, were good. I mean, I, I spent my time at the Ontario Correctional Institute, which is a facility here in Ontario, what's designed and developed to help folks get some recovery and rehab as part of their incarceration. You know, some do, some don't, but uh, it's a revolving door. We're going around and around in circles. My guest this evening is um, Edward Hertrek. He is um, the author of a book called Wasted Time. He spent uh, decades in prison off and on, 
and he's a good friend of mine and someone that I hold in very high regard. Eddie, thanks for being here tonight, man. Thanks for staying up. Good evening. Good evening, Yona, and thank you and CBC for allowing me to participate in this part of uh, your show, this segment. Yeah, except it's chorus radio, but I, global, but that's close. We, we, I knew what you meant. That's okay. We're good. Um, anyway, okay. I, I'm glad you're, I'm glad you're well, Eddie. It's nice to hear you, hear your voice again. It's been a while since we've had a chance to chat. Um, you served wow. quite a bit of time. You've served quite a bit of time in prison. Um, and, uh, did you notice there when, when back in the day, so maybe give us a, a quick, you know, you got, whoever's listening to the show, you gotta, you gotta buy the book, Wasted Time, uh, written by, uh, Edward Hertrick. It's, um, an incredible story of his, uh, of his time in and out of prison. Um, but Eddie, give us a, a quick synopsis of, of kind of the time you spent there and, uh, what it was like when you were there. Well, first, I'd like to welcome your listeners into my home in Toronto. And secondly, I've I've got about 35 plus years of documented incarcerations in different federal penitentiaries, reformatories, local holding cells within the city. So I, I've uh, Ontario has nine penitentiaries and I've been a inmate at seven of them. Uh, the prison for women I couldn't get into, and uh, <laughs> obviously, and uh, one one farm camp. But other than that, I've been to them all, and uh, I've been on committees serving several uh, inmate populations, representing the prisoners in them, and I've come into contact with many of our Indigenous uh, prisoners, and I've had lots of interaction with them. I've read the article by Mr. Zynga in uh, the Toronto Star for the 13th of November, and it's a well-put-together article, but I think it is a bit misleading in that, you know, uh, a large portion of the Indigenous population in our federal systems are in Saskatchewan and Manitoba. They range about 80%. Right. Wow. So when I was in, in the federal penitentiaries in the Kingston area, the, the average was just, they were a significant group, but they were like 10, 15% of the population. Uh, as committee members, they fell under my umbrella, and I, I, I talked with them and, and met with them on many issues. And on most issues, I would hold plebiscites to get their opinions. Uh so they were represented, you know. Uh, so, so why, why, is, why, why is it more difficult in our prison system? Um, okay, so people have to understand that prison is no, no fun. I mean, you know, you, you seem to manage your way through it. You got involved. You, and now you're doing tons of work with kids in crisis and helping the one by one movement and doing what you can to make a difference uh, in exactly. the community. But, but while you were inside, the, the folks that were talking about this indigenous population that we're referring to. Um, how different is that population than, let's say, you know, the the or you know the the gangs of whites and and and, and colors of different color, you know, folks of different well, first, backgrounds first, and so yeah, on. First, they have to understand that they suffered through centuries of uh, uh, colonial subjugation uh, and many wars in which they lost all of their land and they lost most of the resources, and that was followed by a century of when they were placed on reservations and they lost uh, many of their children and their children's lives through child murderers and pedophiles. Yeah. Uh, they have a strong disdain 
for the uniform. Uh, in my opinion, I noticed that uh, indigenous people, it isn't that they don't like guards. They don't like the uniform. They represent the subjugations that uh, their forefathers endured. They don't like authority. And I think uh, that comes to comes to the forefront when they're dealing with authoritarian figures. And I also think that my, through my interaction with them as uh, the institutional hairstylist, I'm kind of like their bartender. They all tell me their stories. Uh, and most of their sentences are exacerbated by assaults, uh, violent confrontations with authority, uh, their lack of communication with the courts. Uh, they're frustrated and they're poor and they're poorly represented because they are poor. They, they're most of them were legal aid funded, and uh, and and so they receive federal sentence. And you know, a lot of their communication and refusal to express themselves with people in authority uh, it hampers their abilities to affect paroles, affect passes, affect. Uh, you know what other inmates get, but yeah, no. As as a as a rule, you know, I found that Aboriginal people are strong, proud people. They're very talented. They're skilled. Uh, I've seen some great woodwork and artwork from them. I've seen some great paintings from them. I've seen some great compositions from them. Although their grammar and the spelling was a little suspect, but they were. Very talented people. They're very, but they're very proud and they're very anti-authoritative. My guest this evening is Edward Hertrick. He is the author of Wasted Time, a book that you need to get. We're talking about the indigenous population in Canada and how it's overrepresented in the uh, prison system. Um, give me an example. Uh, in Canada, the efforts to reduce its prison population uh, has been quite successful as the population has decreased by 16.5% in the last 10 years. For Aboriginal people, it's only been a failure. In the last decade, the Indigenous custodial population increased by 22%. And it's even worse for Indigenous women who now account for nearly half of the federal female inmates in Canada. Eddie, um, when you were inside, um, you spent all those years living there uh, in the prisons over over three decades off and on. Um, Did you notice that there were particular groups that got better treatment than others? And if so, how did that play into kind of this, the story that we're sharing today? Well, I was the Allied coordinator in charge of the cultural groups at Joyceville Institution, and, and my job was to mediate between all the groups to make sure that they all were treated appropriately and, and comparatively. So. Right. Um, I can't say that one group was mistreated more so than the others. They have their call because of their cultural differences. They have different events that they like to conduct. Uh, they have different, uh, social gatherings they'd like to perform. So, uh, we try to accommodate as much as possible. So uh, the, I know that the prisons are starting to look at elders and having more healing opportunities, more, more sort of, uh, culturally specific programs. Uh, in the prison system. Uh, I'm not sure how successful that is. Uh, but if you're an Aboriginal or an Indigenous person in a prison system, um, is there are there groups, are there support groups amongst themselves? Like, 
Uh, you Absolutely, know, they, they... Uh, I, I I am not of uh, of, a, of a First Nations people, but I was, uh, and, and you'll see in my book. I was surrounded by the Native Brotherhood, and they wanted to know why I didn't attend their groups. They, they, you know, form a uh, they form they stick together. You gravitate to the people that you know you have you have some uh, relation with. So, yeah, no, when you're a Native and you come into an institution, the Native Brotherhood will approach you, different uh, people of the same race, they will, and same with the people of color, same with the Asians, same with the Vietnamese, uh, they all gravitate into groups, you know. And, 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 those, and those, does that then provide for the same type of warring that you see on the street, group by group? Or does it also create friction and tension as opposed to brotherhood at times it uh you know it rears its ugly head between groups and there's uh gang fights and stuff like that uh within the institutions you know did you, did you ever lose your sense of self when 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 you were inside i mean we've talked about it privately but uh share with the art with our audience i mean during the the times that you were in and out did you did you find yourself on longer stretches kind of losing who you were and who you belonged to? Well, uh, I, I was different from most people. I mean, I've had arguments with my friends uh, over people that I didn't even know because I felt my friends were in the wrong on an issue. Um, and, you know, so I was kind of an independent kind of guy and I didn't follow the crowd. Um, how do you do that? How, how can you, how do you live as an independent amongst, you know, all of these, you know, fairly significant groups of, of, uh, of inmates? How do you kind of navigate well, I, that? And be a I, lone I, was, soldier? I had my, I had my own group. I was, I you know, Caucasian, okay. right? So, right. you know, I was, uh, the, the two main groups in the institutions are the Caucasians and the people of color. I would say 40% each. Then you would have the Native Brotherhood, the indigenous people, which comprised at that time in Ontario, 10 percent. Like I say, in Manitoba, Saskatchewan, they're 80 percent. Right. I would be a minority there. But in, in Ontario, you know, I was I was one of the uh, and if there was uh, altercations between, say, Native Brotherhood and the people of color, Native Brotherhood and uh, the Vietnamese, uh you know, we would be called in to kind of mediate. So how did you turn your life around at the end of all this? How did you find redemption once you got out of jail? Well, I, I found my redemption through my willingness to forego my substance addiction issues. And once that cleared up, I started looking back on my life, and I realized my 35 years in prisons uh, was not acceptable to me. And uh, I just decided that, uh, you know, I mean, I never found God. I never, uh, you know, I never got hurt. I never got charged. I never got chased in a protective custody. I just decided that I didn't want any more of the criminal lifestyle after four decades of it. And I come out and I told my associates, I love you guys, but I, I got to go to work. And uh, <laughs> I started with nothing. I started with nothing. And, uh, you know, I, I will say that, you know, with the one by one movement, they're offering the courts now 
going uh, going to talk to judges to support uh, offenders to give them an alternative to prison. And I think that the Aboriginal people would best be served by having someone to support them that they don't see as uh, uh, a colonial subjugate kind of person. I, I think right. Mr. Zinga on his article is a correctional investigator, but I think his paycheck is still picked up by the government of Canada. They, you know, they don't like, they don't trust people that are associated with the government. Yeah, no because they see the they see the government as their enemies. When they go to court, they're rude. They're rude to the judges. They're rude to you know. They're they're rude to and and, and it reflects in on their sentencing. And for sure, they need people. They need people to stand up and support them and talk for them. You know, Eddie, Eddie, Eddie you're sitting back. You're, you're not sitting back. You're actively involved in, in in working with young offenders and people that might make a different choice in their life, trying to turn them around. Um, looking back after all these decades, you've been on the streets, off the streets, and we are where we are today. What what do you, what do you think? You, you you think that we're we're really moving in the in in, in like what what are we going to do to keep these kids out of prison and to, to what thoughts do you have around how we're going to reduce the craziness that's out there on the streets today? Well, I think we're trying, and that's pretty much all we can do. And hopefully, um, I know that I've been able to help a few young people, and I hope to be able to help a few more in my lifetime. Uh, and I hope that other people will join this movement and, and push on to help these people. And and not just when I say these people, I mean any people. They're people. And dealing with the indigenous people, I feel like, you know, this this is people's lives we're dealing with here. So it is important, you know. Uh, it might be something small to us, but it might be important to them. So, yes, I think I, I think there is light at the end of the tunnel. I think it's a long tunnel, um, and I think the indigenous people suffered centuries of abuse, and it's going to take a long time for them to get back, but we're going to get them back. And, uh, you know, they're a proud people, and uh, as a Canadian, I'm proud to have them as part of my community. I love you, man. I always have. I always will. Listen, one thing we quickly before I let you go. Get, what do we tell people out there about our prison system? Are, are, are we moving in the right direction? Do we need to make changes? And if so, what can the audience do to help? Oh, continue to evolve. I mean, you know, prisons from when I went in with the Millhaven Mafia guards and, and all the beatings and atrocities and tear glassings and everything. Uh Society, the public coming on board has, has helped immensely. Uh, we've, we've made vast improvements, but we still got a long ways to go. And, and I would just, you know, ask that, you know, people continue to support, support people that are trying to help, you know, and if you can't help, get out of the way because Edward we are going to change it around. Edward Hertrick, uh, author of Wasted Time, good friend of mine, heavily involved with the One by One movement. Uh, get the book and uh, check it out and uh, listen to what the man has to say because he knows what's up. Thanks, Eddie. We'll have you back on again. Thank and you. Uh, wish, wish you all the best, my brother. 